0: Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be beginning uh, a rather open ended series on American political writing, mostly from the 19th century. I don't quite know how far I'll go with it, but I'll do at least a couple of volumes from Live America uh, dedicated to American political writing, and then we'll, we'll see how it, it goes from there. We'll see how I feel about it. The plan right now is to, to start with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, this is a 1,500 page a book published by Library of America, uh, so almost 1,600 pages. One of their longer ones, uh, covering all of, of Jefferson's major writings and a lot of his letters. About half of it are, are his letters. Then we're going to look at Alexis de Tocqueville, although I may throw in Hamilton in there because I have that volume as well. Uh, and from there, we'll look at at Lincoln, I think, and and that will. But so that's as far as I've kind of planned out of where this series will go. Um, but that that's where I'm looking at right now. So the idea is to kind of get uh, get an overview of some of the political ideas and to talk about the political ideas that that helped shape early American history from from the revolution until the until uh, the end of the Civil War. So that's that's the plan. Um, now this volume of Thomas Jefferson is going to take a while for us to to get through. I don't know um, You know if every episode will be particularly long or or detailed, because uh, you know a lot of this are letters and and you know they a lot have a lot of interesting things to say. I don't know if I'm going to talk about each one individually, uh, the way I might sometimes go through things chapter by chapter. Um, Now this volume is not organized chronologically. It's not organized. It's it's organized kind of topically. We begin with Jefferson's autobiography, and that's what I'll talk about today. Uh, Then we'll. We'll look at a summary view of the rights of British America, his, his core contribution to the revolutionary debate of uh, leading up to the Declaration of Independence. Then we'll look at notes of the state of Virginia and then move into his public papers, his addresses, uh, some assorted texts, and then finally for about half of this volume will be devoted to letters. So we're gonna start with his some of his published stuff and some of his public writings before getting to his personal <coughs> uh, reflections in his, in his letters. Um, but obviously, this isn't chronological. The autobiography was written in the last decade of his life, I think. It was never really meant for publication. In fact, one thing we need to remember about this is Thomas Jefferson didn't really write any books. He, you know, The closest he came to was Notes on the State of Virginia, published in 1800, which was initially just uh, an answer to a query about... You know what virgin you know about virginia and life in virginia and the natural history of virginia and he responded to it and i think he sat on it for a few years before getting it published as as a book in the year he was running for for president it's i don't know if it's the first campaign book uh it's certainly an odd campaign book it has nothing really overtly political uh, to say although there are important issues we need to talk about when we look at that that text um so yeah despite him being such an important person in the american revolution and in early american political history he didn't write any any core texts uh, that you know book length texts i should say that that we often come back to in fact usually we read jefferson in fragments right we might read the declaration of independence which he was a principal author of we might read selections of notes to the state of virginia i think very few people sit down and read the whole thing cover to cover you know we might read you know his statement on religious freedom you know these kinds of things or a few of his letters you know we might get an anthology together but you know usually we don't read Jefferson the way we might read uh, well like Tocqueville, for instance or even Hamilton had those huge reports right on the report on manufacturing or whatever Jefferson we have to approach a little bit in a more fragmented fragmented way because he didn't really ever sit down and write his 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 political thoughts all all out in one book for us to read Okay, so Jefferson died in 1826. The autobiography was written in 1821. Again, it was written for his family, written for kind of posterity, for kind of like almost a family heirloom of sorts. And it doesn't cover all of his life. It's it's certainly a, a draft. If he had intended to publish this, he didn't really make any moves towards doing that. That's got a lot of abbreviations. The text we have here is heavily abbreviated, so, you know, you might need a check out footnotes to know people he's talking about he'll abbreviate people from time to time great britain is just grbr uh dates are kind of truncated often and, and all and this whole sections are actually just thrown in with like minutes that he had collected like in a meeting of the continental congress or something you know where he just kind of threw that into the in in, in the middle of the memoir as kind of a to, instead of writing uh, original material so that's just the nature of the text. So it is kind of fragmented, and it doesn't even cover all his whole life. It he only writes really up until he returns from France after serving as the American envoy to France during the years of the American, uh, during the during years of the French Revolution. During that time when the Constitution was being written, you know, and he talks a little bit about this that that period here but mostly he's he's going to focus on what's going on in france and then he doesn't say anything that's like if he ever intended to write more of his autobiography i don't know but he he just stops um returning when he's returned to america uh, and doesn't talk about his presidency his his time as secretary of state or you know any of those other elements of his life or the period after his his presidency. That's just not even in this autobiography. So it, it really focuses on the revolutionary period of, of, of American history. Now, one thing we, we can't read anything of Jefferson's without thinking about is his views on slavery and his experience with slavery. He was of course, uh, one of the biggest slaveholders in Virginia, partially thank you know, part thanks to the slaves he inherited from his, from his wife. Um, but he's very self-conscious of his his role as a slaveholder. And he has very, obviously, very conflicted views about slavery. Uh, even if he didn't really make any efforts in his personal life to to free any slaves. Um, doesn't seem to have taken too many steps in that, that direction. And he uh, did profit off slaves. Um, he had sex with one of his slaves, right? And we'll talk about Sally Hemings as well. He had several children with, with Sally, as, as most of you know. Um, yet in his autobiography, he talks very early, like on the second or third page, he, he talks about his, his dream or his goal of, of emancipating the slaves in Virginia. Uh, quote, in 1769, I became a member of the legislature by the choice of the county in which I lived. And it continued in that until I was closed, it was closed by the revolution. I made one effort on that body for the permission of the emancipation of slaves, which was rejected. And indeed, during the regal government, nothing liberal could expect success, end quote. Um, And this is a a dodge, perhaps, uh, of Jefferson's. We see it in his draft of the Declaration of Independence as well, where he's, even though he benefited from slavery, he was a slaveholder himself, he, he somehow wants to push the blame for this onto Great Britain, in a way. And here he's doing it by saying, like, we tried to end slavery, but the British you know the British wouldn't have allowed anything like to that to have passed um, he doesn't talk about any other real laws that he tried to pursue while he was in this legislature he only mentions this one so it's something on his mind when he's writing this in 1821 I'm, I'm sure there were other laws that he you know sponsored or pursued while he was there but this is the example he he speaks to um, really t- when he opens up his political life his discussion of his political life is, is with a This insistence that he was against slavery from very very early on in his career now what follows here is you know the discussion of a little bit of his time in this Virginia House of Burgesses which was the representative body in, in Virginia before the the revolution and then his participation in the conference in Philadelphia, which of course is the second continental conference Congress, which of course leads to the declaration of independence. Um, a lot of this though, if you've taken your American history class, there's nothing that's going to surprise you. It's just this, the, 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 the events that, that lead up to the American revolution. We all know, right? The, the stamp act, the, the, uh, the, the different tariffs and, and regulations on trade, the Boston tea party and the tea act. And then finally the, the, the um it's slipping my mind the coercive acts uh the closing of the port of boston this is all laid out here and then you know and how jefferson kind of gets into the revolutionary politics through the congress in philadelphia now if you look up the wikipedia on the delegates to the continental um, congress you know, there's something like over 300 of them Right. And they all served at different periods of time. Right. Jefferson served in 1775 to 76. He's not the only one. I mean, Virginia sent a handful of delegates um, and then he served again in 1783, 84 during the, the Articles of Confederation years, uh, one of the last years before the before he left for, for Paris. Uh, but he, he served during that very important year. Right. And, and so he'd be on hand to to be instrumental in the authoring of the Declaration of Independence. Now Jefferson does include his sort of memoirs here, written at the time about the the meetings he was involved with in the summer of seventeen seventy six, particularly uh, June seventh, seventeen seventy six, and I think I think these are the minutes of just one meeting, one long meeting, but you know that of course leads to the, the editing of, of Jefferson's draft of, of the Declaration. Um, but a lot of the angst here is this this idea that they're you know you know they didn't want to offend certain everyone in great britain people might be sympathetic to to the to the colonists to the americans and this again leads back to the question of of why the the stuff about slavery was 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 removed from the final draft Um, now of course this was this part was written in 1776 Quote, Congress proceeded the same day to consider the Declaration of Independence, which had been reported and laid on the table the Friday preceding, and on Monday referred to a committee of the whole. The pulsanamious idea was that we had friends in England worth keeping terms with still haunted the minds of many. For this reason, who, those passages which conveyed censures of the people of England were struck out lest they should give them offense. The clause too reprobating the enslavement of inhabitants of Africa was struck out on compliance to South Carolina and Georgia who had never attempted to restrain the importation of slaves, and who on the country still wished to continue it. Our northern brethren also, I believe, felt a little tender under these censors, for though their people had very few slaves themselves, yet they were very p- pretty considerable carriers of them to others, End quote. So basically the point being that no one really wanted to make a core principle in the Declaration of Independence. You know, anything that would suggest that that the result of this would be the ending of slavery or the, or the slave trade and of course the the revolution didn't do that and the constitution didn't end slavery either. in fact you know enshrined it for for you know 70 more years now if you never compared the the original draft of the declaration of independence with the one that you know was finally signed it's worth doing. It doesn't take very long. In fact, Jefferson here makes it very easy for you because he, he gives us his original draft and he underlines for you the the sections that were taken out, and then he puts alongside of it the revised text. Now, sometimes sections were just removed outright, um, you in know, there's, you know, sections were added or re- reworded, you know, and there's little stuff like the word inherent was changed to certain, you know. Pre- preceding inalienable rights so instead of inherent and inalienable rights. It's just certain inalienable rights. Some of these things are just prose issues, and you know, saying things with one word when instead of two. But really, when you get to the the list of grievances, right, that, that's the bulk of the text, that's where really a lot of Jefferson's words were, were taken out. And some of them were quite interesting. For instance, quote, he had incited treasonable insur- insurrections of our fellow citizens with the allurements of forfeiture and confiscation of our property. And um, so I suppose that was taken out because there was a feeling that this was maybe too broad of a criticism against against the British. But here's the one on slavery, quote, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of liberty and life in the persons of a distinct, in the par- persons of a distinct people who never offended him, kept cap- captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact or distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms against us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has also obterred them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes in which he urges them to commit against the lives of another, End quote. So it's, it's quite a lengthy little proclamation here. Uh, but there's a lot going on here. Um, first, the whole blame for the slave trade is put on on the British king here. Um, not even like the British merchants or the British merchant class. It's really on, on the king itself, right? And of course there's there's reasons for that. Right. Towards the end of the American Revolutionary period, when efforts to reach out to the king failed, the revolution more, moved more you know, against the figure of the king itself. Right. And Tom Paine had a major role in that. Common Sense was published in January of 1776, making more, more expanding the, the view that this revolution should be about overthrowing monarchy itself, not just not just fighting for rights as English people under under the English Constitution. So that's one reason for that. But still, he's, he's, he's putting the king as the person who really creates the, the, the slave trade. But then he mentions something we know as Lord Dunmore's proclamation, right? The, this was the effort by the Virginia governor to, to recruit African-American slaves, or African slaves for that matter. It, it, some of them would have been recent um, recently brought over through the slave trade. Uh, the, the 18th century was the peak of the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, many of them would have been born in America as well. But recruiting them to, the point was to recruit them into the British Army, promising them freedom, right? And so that's another kind of grievance against him uh, put there. So the the very effort to kind of, the the, the fact that the American Revolution created a space for slaves to fight for their freedom in various ways, right? Whether running away, and, and many did. I, I think 10% ran away from Jefferson's own plantation. Um, you know, I think in, in the southern states, South Carolina and Georgia, up to over a half, in, in, you know, in some counties would run away, had, had run away just to fight for the British or just fleeing to other places. So the revolution created a space for a new discourse on, on slavery, Right. But Jefferson here is just kind of lumping it together with kind of the tyranny of the king and and, and not really, I think, appreciating his own words here, where he does t- see this as the slave trade itself as an injustice against these people, but then denies them their own right to fight for that freedom in the context of the war that was breaking out in '75. All right. I mean, that's enough on that, that section, but it's, it's certainly very interesting to, to look at. I just think it's, he's kind of making the argument, you know, two wrongs don't, don't make a right, but, but I'm not sure the, the second part is there's a wrong there. There's nothing wrong with these slaves fighting for their freedom, given the, the opportunity under the British war effort in, in the colonies. Um, I don't know the solution, the solution, you know, Jefferson never is able to really work out this, this solution in his mind, really, of how to how to affect the emancipation of slaves. You know? Now, there's another interesting part here where he talks about kind of the this is, again, the original draft it doesn't show up in the final declaration. It's, it's anxiety about kind of the potential of the British people to to embrace liberty uh, or to be brothers of, of the Americas. Quote, we must endeavor to forget our former love for them and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and in peace, friends. We must have been a free and great people together. We might have been a free and great people together, but a communication of grandeur and of freedom, it seems now below their dignity. Be it so, since they will have it, the road to happiness and glory is open to us, too. We will tread it apart from them and acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our eternal separation. Now, a lot of this was replaced in the final text with. We just we hold them as we hold the rest of mankind enemies in war and, and in peace friends. But that broader kind of criticism of our, you know, this idea that we are no longer capable of really walking hand in hand to a, a future of liberty. You know, Jefferson seems to have this idea that that's, that door's closed for the British. Right. But that, that didn't make it in the final final draft, of course. So that's the Declaration of Independence, of course, signed and, um, and it, it affects the creation of the United States of America. The, this is followed by some more of those like memoirs that he snuck in, he just stuffed in. And again, I, I, they seem to have been written maybe as notes at the time, but they come from uh, the debate over the kind of the formation of government. right? And of course, the government they create, and it's going to take them a while to work out, hammer out the details, the Continental Congress, that is you know, it becomes the Articles of Confederation, right? That that infamously failed government that would be replaced by the Constitution a few years later. Um, but there's still a there's a conversation here about like what kind of government they'll have. And a lot of the conversations that are going to take place in, in Philadelphia in the debate over the Constitution are already here, uh, it seems, according to these notes that Jefferson included here. Um, and one is this for instance, I'll just read it here. Mr. Samuel Chase moved that the quota should be fixed, not by the number of inhabitants of every condition, but by that of white inhabitants. He admitted that taxation should always be in proportion to property and that this was in theory the true rule, but that from a variety of differentials, it was a rule which could never be adopted in practice. The value of the property in every state could never be as- estimated justly and equally some some other measure for the wealth of the state must be devised some standard referred to which would be more simple he considered that the number of inhabitants as a tolerably good criterion of property and that this must always be obtained quote and then he goes on and, and explains that initially this, this is about like how do you apportion ta- taxes and, and obligations of the government and and the debate that of course would be key in in the constitution was do you count black people do you count slaves because you know they produce wealth right and shouldn't that wealth be taxed and how do you measure the wealth of different places and you know now we just have income tax and dollars but you know pre-modern well i guess this is still modern but in early modern times in the 18th century you know it was you know land was you know it, it was hard to determine kind of where value was in things right when people just kind of grew food here or grew cotton there or tobacco in one place, you know, some people were involved in commerce. You know, sometimes from a tax point of view, you're kind of comparing apples and oranges. So then you kind of just say, well, we'll just base it on population, right? We'll we'll divvy out taxes based on population. That's what the constitution eventually says, right? But how do you count people who aren't free and not voting, right? And then that's where we get the three-fifths clause from. But this debate was actually being talked about back in the formation of the Articles of Confederation where you had representatives of the South essentially saying a black man and white man both create wealth or I should say a slave and a freeman both create wealth and therefore should be taxed. And this is the response of, of John Adams to, to Samuel Chase saying it shouldn't just be whites because black people are also producing wealth, right? So how can you say the one produces wealth and the other doesn't, right? Of course chase from the south who doesn't want the southern states to pay taxes on the labor of black people don't don't, didn't think they should be counted as as taxable individuals right this isn't about representation yet right it's kind of gets inverted with the debate about representation in the in the constitution where the south is trying to expand its its representation by having this these slaves counted all right, this is just more of a, of, of a tax debate. Now, interestingly, uh, a little bit later, Jefferson reports here that Mr. Benjamin Harrison proposed a compromise that two slaves should be counted as one freeman. He affirmed that slaves did not do so much work as freemen and doubted if two affected more than one, that this was proved to be the, the, in the price of labor, the higher of a labor in the southern colonies being from eight to 12 pounds, while in the north it was generally 24 pounds. End quote. Um, that's not quite the, the three-fifths uh, Compromise, but it, it's getting close to it. So, in addition to the uh, to the to the tax debate, there's conversation in these pages about uh, voting and 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 in proportion to states and things like that, state size. And of course, the article to Confederation, Confederation would eventually have have voting by states, um, not not by population at all. So it's it's not the most interesting reading, but if if you are interested in the debates that, you know, the compromise that led to the Constitution, I think these, these are interesting pages because they show that some of these conversations were taking place in the formation of the Articles of Confederation. And there's a bit of a context here. There's a, a, a memory, I suppose, of, of this conversation and these both these documents maybe had some similar bickering in, in the backdrop of them. So but anyway, after he leaves Congress, Jefferson, of course, uh, becomes very active in Virginia state politics. Uh, He's the state legislature. He is a governor for for, I think, for just one term, I think. um, 1779 to 1780. And while he was um, in the legislature, he drafted 126 bills. Um, so he's very, very active in in reforming the government of, of Virginia and creating the foundation of of that state's uh, laws. Right, the most important of these is the, the the bill on religious freedom, right, which which we'll look at a little bit later. Now he talks a lot about what he. The kind of things he did, like where the government's going to be sat, who's going to be citizens of of the state of Virginia. These are things that had to be worked out by this the state legislature, and he was really key in that. Uh, he gives himself a little bit of humility here. Uh, he says, in giving this account of the laws of which I was myself the mover and draught, draftsman, I by no means, I by no means, to claim that myself the merit of obtaining their passage. I had many occasional and strenuous coadjutors in in debate, and one of the most steadfast, able, and zealous who was himself a host. This was George Mason, a man of the first order of wisdom, among whom acted on the theater of revolution, an expansive mind, profound judgment, cognitive argument learned in the lore of our former constitution, and earnest for the Republican change on democratic principles. So he, he does say he, was, he didn't do this alone, but it is impressive how many laws he put forth while a legislator um, now, one of these that really interested me to re- to read about was his his efforts to reform the criminal law code under the principles of of Cesare Beccaria, who was an Enlightenment thinker from Europe who wrote that book on Crime and Punishment. And, and that book, although I never read the whole thing, my understanding is it was a criticism of like physical punishment and the death penalty, and you know, and basically part of this early shift to kind of moving towards punishment being replaced with rehabilitation in a way right and of course that leads us to the whole history of the prison which is of course very very problematic in its own way but Jefferson was was in some ways touched by this he, he mentions Beccaria by name actually quote Beccaria and other writers on crime and punishments had satisfied the reasonable world of the unrightfulness and inefficacy of the punishment of crimes by death and hard labor on roads canals and other public works had been suggested as a proper substitute right so uh, he gets a couple pages here where where he he talks about his efforts to reform the legal code and to re- abolish capital punishment in Virginia he mentions in passing uh, the bill fund religious freedom I, I thought he would have said more a little bit more about it but he just gives us one short short paragraph um, on that maybe he thought it was enough the document speaks for itself um, but he did certainly he, he he thought a lot of it right it's one of the the things he puts on those, like his Gravestone, right, of the things he achieved in his life. Um, what else is here? Oh, back to slavery. Yeah, um, he wrote this. Uh, the bill on the subject of slaves was a mere digest of the existing laws respecting them, and without any Im- imitation of a plan for a future in general emancipation, it was thought better that this should be kept back and attempted only by way of amendment whenever the bill should be brought on. The principle of the amendment, however, agreed upon, and that is to say, the freedom of all born after a certain day in deportation at a proper age but it was found that the public mind would not yet bear this proposition, nor will it bear it even at this day, End quote. Now, writing this in 1821, he's still thinking, that's what he exposes here, is he's still thinking in terms of, of some kind of emancipation followed by uh, emigration, an emigration policy, right? And this was what was being advocated by the Colonization, colonization Society, um, which was, you know, I don't want to say abolitionist, because they were for the ending of slavery, but they wanted this... Ending slavery and then repatriation Or Forced migration of of Africans and African Americans to The to Africa Um, Now many of the people who would have been Forced to migrate Were born um, In the United States And probably didn't And didn't know anything about Africa Outside of maybe stories And even if They were from Africa if they were like Um, before the slave trade was closed down brought over they would have been relocated to a place very distant from their home and culture so um, obviously this colonization plan was was pretty foolish and completely lacking any sensitivity to the reality of of identity and the experience of of slaves in america Um, but that's that's where jefferson is and this is toward the end of his life so uh, I think it's fair to say that that seems to be where he, he he stayed throughout his his life um again a lot of equivocating here too on like the political reality before he was blaming the king now he can't right but he's got to blame politics says so we got to take it slow quote it is still in our power to direct the process of emancipation and deportation peaceably and in such a slow degree that the evil will wear off insensibly and their place will be pari pasu filled up by free white laborers if on the contrary it is left to force itself on human nature must shut out the prospect held up we should in vain look at the example of the spanish deportment or deletion of the moors this precedent would far fall far short of our case end quote well um yeah that's not the example i would think of referring to uh, one of the earliest examples in. If not the earliest example in modern history of of an ethnic cleansing, right? The deportation of Jews and and Muslims from Spain after the, the after the, the Reconquista. Other important laws that he seemed to have pushed forth uh, while they pushed for while he was uh, in. In the virginia legislature at least referred to in this autobiography deal with things that would eradicate like the foundations of aristocracy right so uh, abolition of primogeniture equal partition of inheritances um, uh, religious freedom is mentioned here again too um, you know anything that could interrupt a republican government by creation of a new aristocracy were things he tried to target and obviously um he's not fully successful here in america's americans never were fully successful in eradicating inherited wealth and and the inequalities born in that Uh, we're certainly still living in a world with huge uh gaps between the rich and the poor Um, but the attempts were made and they might be interesting to take a closer look at now the the sections on jefferson's time in paris they're i don't know i found them not the most captivating uh parts of this particular text a lot doing with the peace treaty a lot doing with like relations with north africa and the the so-called barbary pirate states which jefferson was trying to get french support and helping americans suppress it he was opposing european tendencies to i guess uh Kind of, you know, pay them off and and tolerate them when the United States wanted a harder approach. It's while he's in Paris, of course, that the that the decision that the convention in Philadelphia takes place, which creates the Constitution, which of course uh, eventually is ratified. Um, Jefferson's opinion on the Constitution was seems at this point at least, writing in eighteen twenty one, to have been generally positive. I mean, his position seemed to have been that of like a. a, a the standard anti-federalist who maybe supported the constitution as a whole but you know wanted to have the bill of rights you know this was written in 1821 i mean this you know it's a bit teleological which he can present himself as as kind of supporting the constitution but also supporting the the bill of rights so he kind of it remains aloof from the federalist anti-federalist debate um that, that that really took place at the time but before i can be you know at all critical of his points here when you actually read his letter to James Madison penned in 1787 here I'm cheating I'm skipping ahead later in the book he says kind of the same stuff um, he says there are other th- good things of less moment I would like to add now what I don't like first the omission of a bill of rights providing clearly and without the aid of um, sophisms for freedom of religion freedom of the press protection against standing armies blah 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 and then later on, a second feature I dislike and greatly dislike is the abandonment of, in every instance of the necessity of rotation of office. And most particularly in the case of the president, experience concurs with reason in conducting that the first magistrate will always be reelected if the constitution permits it. He is then an officer for life. This once observed becomes of so much consequence to certain nations to have a friend or a foe at the head of our affairs that they will interfere with money and arms and quote, just essentially corruption will build into established offices. He says the same things in 1821. These same criticisms of of the Constitution, um, and he, w- he, you know, by 1821 he saw that this second criticism, at least in terms of the presidency, was a, basically dealt with by tradition. Right, that Washington served two terms, and everyone following pretty much served two terms, and that was not challenged. That tradition was not challenged, of course, until the until the 20th century with with um, FDR. Now, much of the rest of the autobiography, the next 20 pages or so, right up into the end, deals with his observations of the French Revolution. Um, of course, Jefferson was in France during the, the opening years of the French Revolution. Uh, he praises the establishment of the Bill of Rights. He he explains the context of the violence that, that emerged in the early years of the French Revolution. And he really did see the French Revolution as an event of global significance that needed to be appreciated and understood by American audiences and that seems to be an opinion that he didn't change on uh throughout his life either um here right in 1821. Quote, the newness of which I have so far given its details is disproportioned to the general scale of my narrative, but I have thought it justified by the interest which the whole world must take in this revolution. And yet we are but in the first chapter of its history. The appeal to the rights of man, which had first been made in the U.S., was taken up by France, first of the European nations. From her, the spirit has spread over those of the South. The tyrants of the North have allied indeed against it, but it is irresistible. Their opposition will only multiply its millions of human victims their own satellites will catch it and the condition of man throughout the civilized world will finally and greatly ameliorated this is the wonderful instance of great events from small causes End quote so he's certainly seen the french revolution as as a continuation of the american revolution and and one of the great events in, in human history so i guess that's it the the, the end of the autobiography is, is Jefferson's return to America, so we don't get any of his thoughts on, on later history. Was he planning to write this? I don't know, um, but it's not what we get here with this autobiography. Um, so a decent introduction to Jefferson's career. I, I don't think it's it's going to shock anyone if they read it. There's not a whole lot of self-aggrandizement, I don't think. He does highlight you know the achievements he made. He, he is fairly humble at it. I find the most interesting things to be his attitude towards the French Revolution, um, and and slavery in particular. And, and I think we see here his equivocation on the issue of slavery, but at the same time, his his belief that that the United States had to do something about slavery, right? And now he, he remained committed to some scheme of colonization to the end of his his days, as far as I understand. But um, you know, nevertheless, if it's useful to just skim this for those references to slavery to get a a, a brief window uh, into his thoughts on that, he's going to expand on race and and kind of the the deeper issues about race in America in Notes on the State of Virginia. I'll talk about that um, next time. At least when we'll look at look at that text. So I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend reading this. I I felt at times it it. Doesn't really add to much of what we already know. If you've, you've studied all the American Revolution, it's kind of a, a you know you know. But it does serve as sort of an introduction to to his life, and I think it's not bad that it was put first in this particular anthology. So otherwise, though, I I'm, it's it's not the most memorable autobiography I've ever ever read. It, it is a first draft, though, in its defense. It was not meant. It doesn't seem to be meant to be published, or if it if he did want to publish it this was not ready for publication it was just kind of th- thrown together and, and it seems it was more for more for as a family heirloom um, Jefferson really didn't really try to publish too much um, in, in his life so in the next episode I will will look at a summary view of the rights of British America which is ma- his major contribution to the, the pamphlet debates of, of, of the revolutionary era um, and then we'll start taking a look at notes from the state, notes of the state of Virginia, notes on the state of Virginia, sorry, notes on the state of, the state of Virginia, particularly we'll look at uh, queries one through six, which covers the first half of the book or so, um, and then in the follow-up episode, we'll, we'll look at the rest of, of this particular book, so um, if you're reading along, uh, you know, go check out the autobiography, let me know what you think about it, maybe i, I Maybe there's more value in there than what I saw in my first first read through. Um, I do want to say, though, I've never read this stuff by Jefferson before, except in, in small samples. I never read like, you know, the entirety of notes on the state of Virginia or his letters. I've, I've always just kind of glanced at parts of them. So it's going to be a new experience for me. So anyways, let, let me know what you think of of jefferson's autobiography if you ever come across it or read it give me your thoughts on it you can send me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at gmail.com uh, or just leave a comment below i'd love to hear what your experience with 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 um him is now i haven't said too much about sally hemmings uh i probably won't in this series to be frank because i i skim through there's very little mentioned even in the letters um about him he didn't write about her publicly uh, or in, you know in letters, so that history is is often mostly an oral history um, kept by the Hemings family. Um, but from time to time when we talk about race and his views on slavery, we will be reminded that he did have this um, long-term sexual relationship with with one of his slaves um, and and what sense we make of that is is really important to how we understand Thomas Jefferson. But uh, for now, um, it's enough to say that he's, the autobiography shows a very conflicted man in, in, uh, on the issue of slavery, which, of course, is something we know from, from all the biographies and, and the writings about Jefferson. Um, so that's it for now. Um, see you next time when we look at notes on the state of Virginia and a, a summary view of the rights the of Englishmen. So see you then.